0: So, how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm AJ Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome everybody to Cash Flow to Freedom. I'm so excited for today's podcast. We got Kevin on, and Kevin, he has specialized in an asset class. That I'm so interested in and I have so many questions about as well as our community. Uh, a lot of you have uh, probably heard from him, especially if you're looking in the manufactured housing space. He owns 17 communities. I'm so excited to have him on. And without any further ado, welcome on, man. Thanks for having me, bud. Absolutely. Self-storage and manufactured housing are you know, a lot of times viewed as similar asset classes because of situations like the economies in, you know, today. And as we were previously talking about, it's, uh, and maybe that's why I'm so interested in your asset class, because I feel like it's a sister to self-storage, right? It's kind of its own thing. Like people that specialize in it do really good. And it's a little different, I guess, on operations and financing and everything. So I'm really excited here to dive in with you but first before we get into all the nitty-gritty about like the asset class tell us first of all how you got started in real estate and what what brought you to this asset class.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and thank you again for having me on here. You know, I'll, I'll try to keep this this short. So I'm 40 years old now, and uh, I, I've been in real estate now since I was 19. So I got introduced to it just by happenstance. It, it, I was not looking for it. It kind of found me, and so I'm very blessed and grateful for that because I don't know where I'd be at today if it wasn't for real estate. I don't know what I'd be doing with my life. Uh, and so ultimately, I got introduced to it by a gentleman that uh, happened to be dating the mother of a girl that I was dating at the time. So, you know, kind of a weird convoluted story there, but he was about 25 years older than I was at at that point. And uh, we just kind of struck up a friendship and uh, he lived a pretty cool lifestyle, very different than what I was used to. growing up in a, you know, blue collar household, which was we had everything we needed and uh, didn't go without, but he lived a very different lifestyle than that. And, um, and I was intrigued by it. And again, built up this friendship. I saw what he did uh, he invited me to a conference, um, you know, a couple months into our, our friendship, and uh, it was a three-day boot camp on how to fix and flip houses and wholesale houses and things like that. and uh, And I was even more intrigued at that point, and, and essentially saw something that uh, was exciting to me because uh, I didn't really know where I was going at that point in my life. I was going, you know, attending community college and just didn't really have much direction. and uh, And so I essentially asked David. His name was David. I said, "David, can I can I help you? How can I help you in your business? I I want to learn more." And I don't know where to start, although you took me to boot camp, like there's books and things like that. But like, how can I fast track this? Can I help you grow your business? And uh, essentially that's what happened, you know, in between tending bar in the evenings and going to school during the day, any downtime I had for the, literally the next year, I was either at David's office, out in the field with him. I I was basically being his admin for free, you know, doing anything he needed to do. And if it was like, Hey, Kevin, go grab and grab lunch for us. Right. I would do whatever he asked me to do so that I could just absorb uh, everything that he knew, and uh, be around him on a regular basis. Now, how long ago was this? This is—I mean, this is 20 years ago.
0: Because 20, I mean, one years
1: ago to be exact.
0: So you know, it's just interesting because you know, in, most of our listeners probably already know who you are. They've probably heard of the Real Estate Investing uh, for Cash Flow podcast. Um, uh, I know it was one of mine, even getting started in real estate. You know, I was listening to it. It's great. But, I mean, you're like we talked about manufactured housing that uh, you're in. But, I mean, you're in like a, a lot of different real estate assets, correct?
1: Yeah, I, I have been. So, today, uh, a, a majority, like 90% of our portfolio consists of manufactured housing, um, I have limited investments in other asset classes such as retail, multifamily, office, and self-storage. Um, but it, it, it's as a limited partner, I'm not active in those niches. And the only other asset class that we actively own today, outside of manufactured housing, are parking lots, which is a fairly new asset class for us. So parking lots and parking garages. And so, um, but I have owned a lot over the years. I've owned hundreds of family homes. I've owned lots of different types of commercial real estate. I've always tried to. St- I've always tried to not spend my energy or focus on more than two asset classes at a time. I've always found that uh, focus. In fact, one, you know, becoming an expert at one before you, you know, seemingly want to jump to another, add another one to the mix is important. And that that's how I've that. always kind
0: of run the business. Yeah, I love that. That's how we run ours I- I- exactly the same way. But you you got started with your mentor, if I may call it, in more of that single family house.
1: That's correct yeah single family and small multis, mostly like duplexes. Uh, and, and most of his business were buy and hold. And so he was at a different point in his business where everything he bought, he turned into a rental. Uh, I learned very quickly that that model doesn't work when you're starting with seven thousand dollars. you need to build up a capital base. And so what I would try to do as I got kind of rolling, I would you know buy you know buy and either rehab and flip or, Uh, wholesale three homes, and then keep one, you know, buy three, sell them, keep one. And that was the, it wasn't always three, sometimes more, sometimes less, but I had to build up capital base before I could actually start building that rental portfolio. But I really just modeled what he did. And you know, what he taught me is, is how to create a reoccurring revenue stream from rental properties, have your tenants help pay down your debt, and ultimately get to the point where you own these things free and clear and have, you know, Evergreen cash flow is what he used to call it. So that I didn't know another model. I figured I wasn't going to try to fix what wasn't broken, and so I'd say, "Hey, I'm just going to emulate exactly what you're doing, David. Just show me the ways, and I'll and I'll copy it."
0: I love that. For a lot of people, I think, particularly that are lost and not understanding where to go, how to get started, everything like that. I would say you don't know what you don't know. Having a mentor, at least to me, that was. Uh, same thing you're talking about like we we were trying to get into uh, an asset class that was fairly unknown to us self storage. you know if we didn't team up and if we didn't have people that basically held our hands for th- through the first year, I mean we joined associations we teamed up what we thought were the best in class um, at the time to learn how to turn that and that takes off years and if it not years, I mean is the difference of people that actually make it or not? At least I find that in my experience that success is breeded by who you're around and the knowledge that is transferred.
1: I I mean, knowing myself back when I was 19 years old when I met him, I was fairly timid. I I was, you know, I I I I would have classified myself as being a shy individual. Although I tended bar, so I was I was like this. uh, forcefully outgoing introvert, like I forced myself to get uncomfortable, like tending bar was a very uncomfortable experience for me, especially in, you know, at a place that I worked, it was very busy on Friday and Saturdays, you know, hundreds of people coming through the door. And so I was a very shy individual. And so I don't think I would have probably taken knowing myself, I would not have taken the action steps necessary as you know, as a standalone individual, if David wasn't around, if I didn't have someone to show me the model, and and kind of, you know, not necessarily hold my hand, but just for me to better understand, you know, the challenges I was about to face, you know, ultimately how to overcome those challenges and have a sounding board have someone that's been there and done that. Um, and, and also pick me up when I was feeling down, you know, w- there's all these like emotional roller coasters that you go through being yeah. an entrepreneur. Yes. I probably wouldn't have made it. I mean, just to be honest. No, it's true.
0: I mean, and I think that's a really good point to understand that those emotional roller coasters and two when times get hard or scary. If you haven't been through that, to have somebody there that has been through it and said, listen, hey, it's okay. This is momentary or this is part of the plan. If not, so you don't internalize it and say, oh, well, I tried this, but it's obviously me. Right. And because I'm not making this work. And when you look at other people's success, that's nope, it was a straight line. Right. They just rocketed outer space to have someone there that says it's okay, It's fine. This is part of it. I had those things, too. It changes the way you view, you know, your own performance and to the outcome of the situations that like today that we're scared in. And, you know, all of a sudden when you're questioning yourself, why did I get into this?
1: Well, it, it, it brings up an interesting point. I was on a call yesterday. I've got two very, actually three very close friends. Typically get together every quarter um, somewhere in the in the country and, and do like our own little mini mastermind. Uh, one of them is a self-storage expert. The other one has a very significant size, a medical office portfolio, about a billion dollars. And then the other individual is in the retail sector. And he's got a you know fairly significant portfolio as well. And all of them have been investing for a good bit of time. But all of them got started uh, uh, shortly after the you know the recession or crash of two thousand and eight, and so this is this is all the this is all new to them, and and they made a comment yesterday during our call. Um, about how seemingly calm I was during you know some of the you know uh, uh, very sensitive conversations we were having about you know just cash flow and runway and you know they're both they're, they're all experienced not the self storage friend, but the other two the medical office he's got about a billion dollar portfolio and already sixty percent of his tenants which consist of um, uh, which consists of like you know, primary physicians you know specialty practices that aren't they're not open except for emergencies now. Sixty percent of his tenants have already basically stated they're not—they're not going to be paying rent. Puts him in a very precarious situation. Uh, they're very—they've uh, got a bit of liquidity, but sixty percent of their portfolio not going to pay for a couple of months. That's going to be rough. Same thing going with the retail guy. Same situation, right? It's out of our control. There are some things we can control, like being correct with talking to lenders and things of that nature. But I guess it's weird you know they looked at me you know like why are you so calm i'm like Cause it, it, it's rough but like this is this is the other day when our tenants had not started really paying the rent for the collection month yet and uh I've been not necessarily losing sleep over, it, but if there's anything that's keeping me awake is we got a good bit of runway. We got liquidity, but if 40% of our tenants choose not to pay. You'll selectively choose not to pay over the next couple of months. Things will get a little rough, you know? And so we can only control what we control. And we've tried to be, you know really proactive communication with the residents and proactive with our banks and just letting them know where we stand financially. Here's what our worst case scenario looks like. You know, we've spent a lot of time with our team strategically planning out like the runway and the burn rate of each property individually, the the company as a whole, and, you know, where are those cliffs at with each one of these individual properties that we own across the board. And, and, you know, some of them will fare better than others if things get really bad, but at least we know where that cliff is. And that makes me a lot more comfortable. I don't like the fact that there's a cliff and it's, and it's inevitable at some point in time. Right. But at least I know where it's at and I can have clarity going into my, you know, day by day routine of, How's today going to be? Am I going to be calm? Am I going to be frantic? Well, I know that I've got three months. I know I've got four months in that property, five yeah. months. We're pretty damn good. So anyway, yeah. not, not no, to get off No,
0: a t- no, 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 no. That's actually yeah. really important because, you know, I have, was having a conversation with one of my very, very close friends uh, the other day, and he's in the hotel space. He owns um, 15 hotels, something like that. And they're shut down. They're, they're dark. So he let go 400 people. And... Uh, They are literally dark. The manager of the hotel lives in the hotel. And they have security that patrols to make sure people don't come in and loot and destroy the hotels. And he's like, we can, you know, he's very conservative and has massive cash reserves. And he's like, we can survive for months. But after four or five months, you know, he's like, we're done. And he's like, and two, something like 40% of the hotel space is done after two months. And oh, sure. you're like, you Especially know, when you have zero
1: revenue, you're not talking about like this, a yeah. decrease in revenue. It's like zero, zero, it's nothing. And, and
0: it's,
1: it's unprecedented see, because scary, no one could the have ever expected part about that. And not to interrupt, but I want I want to add to another point there that I think a lot of people aren't really thinking about. You know, everyone keeps saying like getting back to normal, like there's going to be a new normal. It will not be what it was in February. It'll be a very different world that we live in. There's going to be a lot of companies that go out of business permanently, a lot of lodging hotel chains that go out permanently. You know, even when we get back to this, you know, a, a point to where this stay at home is lifted across the country, people are still going to be incredibly cautious they're not going Uh,
0: jumping on planes or they're not going to a concert it's it's going to be a
1: slow transition same with hotels it's going to be a slow transition so it's not a matter of like can i survive for these three months you know with no revenue or very very little revenue it's like those three months but then what does that curve or that trajectory look like going back up over the next six months where people actually gain confidence again and uh this is assuming that this virus doesn't come back around again we'll be better prepared next time if it's like the flu then it probably will have it it will show it's ugly head every year at some point right and and it would just be thing we have to deal with but well
0: yeah hopefully we'll have a virus but you're you're right in that because if you look at how it transpired or happened when and I was as I was talking to him he goes you don't understand what one night I was at seven or 92 percent occupied in my hotels and a 24 hour period I was 12 and then from there I'm shut down I mean it, it this wasn't something you built into This wasn't something you went. We went from the top of the world, and then in some asset classes, to not even below. Like he said, this is not even close to two thousand and eight. This is so worse than that for them. Oh, absolutely. And you know, that's uh, that jars the system. That jars business models. That jars the the thought process of individuals how they invest what they do day to day, and I think you're right. We'll enter a new normal that, you know, I don't know how long that may last, but people are not, things that were socially acceptable before are probably not going to be socially acceptable after this, and that for a long time, there will be almost a negative thought process with people that are gathering in large groups. Like I don't think that's going away until we have a vaccine or there's zero cases, which, isn't happening for a long, long time. So those, you know, when you we look at, you know, assets we're buying or what, you know, what we're doing for over the next six months, which, you know, we have multiple developments in the project that we're moving forward with. Um, they're great properties, great site. I got one acquisition that I'm trying to do right now, but we're looking at areas that, you know, maybe I, I'm not sure where, where are you from? Florida, right?
1: Based in Clearwater, Florida, but we've yeah, got Clearwater. properties in thirteen different states, so we're we're all over the map.
0: Yeah, so like I'm probably going to avoid Orlando, for example, um, and you know places that are extremely dependent on people congregating together. Um, so I think you're totally right. There's going to be a new normal, and we're not sure what it looks like, but we're trying to anticipate it.
1: And so, your business being self storage, have you noticed any, at this, up until this point in time, have you noticed any type of blip uh, in, in terms of normalcy of collections?
0: So, we, um, and this is another thing that's hard because we are a month to month, right? So, and we have a population that isn't dependent on working or being around others. So, we haven't seen anything. Um, Although we have one property that's in an area that is dominated by hotels and casino stuff. We saw more of a move out than normal there. But all our other properties basically maintained. Now, we believe that that's how it'll work for now. But when you're talking 30% unemployment, our delinquencies are obviously going to skyrocket. And two, something a lot of people don't understand is how the states are handling... Payments, late pays, things like that. That you know, if all of our tenants find out that we can't auction anything off, and two, we can't even charge them a late fee by law, there's zero incentive for anybody to pay. And, Has that happened
1: in your space? though? is that is that, a, is that yes, a real thing?
0: That's a thing. You can't do auctions. Okay, it's interesting. Yep. So that that makes us very nervous. On you know, if this lasts too long everybody's going to figure that out and then people are just going to say i'm not paying you there's zero consequences for me not paying well so at least that the media hasn't first. actually
1: spread that word around i think that was the that was the biggest thing that's probably been keeping me up at night over the last couple of weeks is the uh you know the media has very much misinterpreted or, or conveyed the message of the eviction moratorium across the country because it really only applies to uh, federally backed, you know, h- homes that have federally backed mortgages on them. Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, so HUD, Fannie Freddie, you know, and, and then there's state by state moratoriums that are a little bit more specific in language, you know, New York being one of them, you know, there's a 90 day moratorium on evictions. However, again, the misinterpretation of is uh, 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 that In New York, for example, it's 98 more term. However, you can still file. You can still file and you could still get in line. So when the courts open back up, and so a lot of the residents have interpreted that message across the country as, well, I just don't have to pay. I, I don't have to pay. I can't get evicted. I don't have to pay. And that's not the case. And so we were trying to do our best, you know, two weeks leading up to. Uh, you know, April 1st, you know, the first of the new collection month to educate them, to provide the resources, you know, local resources, national resources, uh, you know, uh, where they can find uh, support, you know, if they you know, feel they're not going to be able to pay their rent this coming month. Uh, also, we, we you know, designated the concierge in our business. We took a girl out of one position and put her as our, we call her the COVID-19 hotline. And we have a dedicated number set up that basically our residents can call if they're having problems that they need to help help walking through getting set up on online payments because they don't want to go drop their check off at our office. Uh, if they want to make a credit card payment, we're waiving credit card fees. Um, if they even need help filing unemployment, you know, we're literally walking them through the step-by-step of filing unemployment because some like our demographic, you know, we have a, we have a percentage of, of seniors, uh, probably about 30% of our residents are seniors and you know, probably only have computers, right? They, maybe they would have gone to the library, the public library to use the computer or what have you. And so we're making it as convenient as possible for them but also at the same time educating them as to you know their obligation we're here to work with you we're here to support you this is a team sport we're working through this together you guys are feeling pain we're feeling pain we're all feel, the entire world is feeling pain right now this isn't a landlord versus tenant this isn't a point in time where you know, you guys gather together and stand up to fight the big bad landlord that's getting rich because that is just not happening. So we've, we've tried to do our best to really align ourselves side by side as, as hey, we're walking through the storm together, not, hey, you're in the storm. We're up here in the, you know, the shelter. Good luck. You know, we're trying to make it be complete opposite of that.
0: I love that. I love this working hand in hand with your tenants. It's you know, something we, we've tried to implement as, as well as saying, listen, this is a time where we move people as much as we can and use this opportunity. And anyone that's in real estate should. And how you collect your fees, things like that may change. Some of our properties, we have extremely high auto pays, like 93%. But a lot of them we don't. And they're way some are below fifty uh, percent, and this is a time where we're like, you got to get everybody on auto pay. So we have our managers making calls saying, "Hey, we understand what's going on. Um, we're trying to make your life easier. I we want to protect you, make sure you're safe. So this is a great time to go onto auto pay. So that way you don't even need to worry about it. You need to get on. So moving people to auto pay helps them, helps us, and you know that that process of having our managers work, uh, with our tenants is really important right now and being compassionate and understanding of people's situations. Um, you know, it's, it's, th- th- this is a time where that's going to pay off in, in dividends in the future. And two, I like this idea that you make sure that people understand this is not landlord lord versus tenant because you're right. This isn't, you're like, listen here, we're, we're, you know, there's no one that's escaping this. Obviously, no one. The government shut down the economy. So now tell me about, obviously, your industry is not getting hit as hard as hotels and others. Um, There's, I've seen, where I'm seeing a lot of pain through people are uh, people that opened up like new builds or have a new project that they're in the middle of. Finance is leaving, right? They're getting it pulled, all that. Do you have any projects that were in that boat, right?
1: No, thank. Thankfully, no, we do not. Um, uh, we uh, w- so we buy. We have multiple different fund structures. That's typically how we buy properties. We don't do one at a time. We normally raise a you know a certain amount of capital and go buy you know six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve properties in a given year, or period of time. And we had just wrapped up our the end of our second mobile home park fund, uh, uh, the third quarter of last year. And so, with the intent of rolling out another one here in the next two months, w- which probably will be delayed a little bit. And so we just happened to be in a very uh, a good, good position overall. Uh, not, I can't say that we were 100% planning for like a recession. However, I've been very cautious since 2008. I got my butt kicked in 2008 and I learned a lot of lessons. And so I've probably been uh, overly conservative and cautious uh, since that point in time with everything we do. And you know, the interesting thing about that is over the past three years, it's been a little frustrating because I feel like you know, it got to the point to where I'm like, am I wrong? Because we're passing on deals that everyone are clamoring <laughs> yes. to get. Am I wrong? You know, like, yes. am, am I just being over conservative? Am I being over cautious? You know, we uh-huh. missing out on great because of that, because I'm like still in this state of shock from, you know, basically losing everything and, and uh, being broke, what have you, in, in, in 2000 for literally years thereafter. Uh, but now I look and I'm like, well, actually, we're in a pretty good position now. So,
0: yeah, no, <laughs> I couldn't know, agree
1: with you more. That's we bought everything really, you know, conservatively, and we've got a good bit of as far as equity and cash flow on each one of those properties. And they didn't have to, you know, absolutely kill it in order for them to make sense as far as like a yield is concerned. I mean, they could have performed even, half, you know, half, you know, at a half nature, and uh, they'd still do just fine. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I, well, I, I we're and, and a good. I,
0: this is a good point, though. What you bring up and what you learned from two thousand and eight, um, because we're the same way, and we felt in the last two years we were like people are buying storage facilities like their apartment buildings, like five caps, like four, three and a half caps we were seeing. And we weren't buying anything for like two years. We bought one property that we could find that we could get a great return on and turn it around. We do a value add strategy. And I started thinking, it was like this year, I'm like, man, am I just overly conservative? Cause we have, you know, we have below 50% uh loan to value and we we try to keep high cash flowing low debt you know and it was same thing i was thinking this year i'm like i think we may be really missing the boat on this <laughs> like starting to worry that um we were scarred too from 2008 and then now we're sitting here going you know i'm glad we didn't didn't buy a ton of properties and we're in a good position to go buy some more and it's you've got to balance that though obviously which you've done a fabulous job because you are are you the largest mobile home park owner in the united states no 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 okay. no,
1: no, no i mean we're but you know, you, 19 communities 19 uh, i mean we're, we're. we're in the grand scheme i mean there's a couple public traded companies there's a couple uh uh private owners that are p- fairly significant size you know uh, multi-billion dollar organizations no we're nowhere near that so but still but though you got to be 17 pregnant, you got to be in the top we're in like the top 100, you know, of, of yeah. operators. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know where we're at on that on that list, but, uh, you know, we're in the top 100. You yes. know, the, the top 10 probably own, uh, you know, 40% of the industry. So it's, it's pretty consolidated with that top 10. And then it gets very fragmented thereafter. But, um, yeah, no, we're, um, you know, we're, we're just, uh, you know, we're a small outfit in the grand scheme of things. You know, I, I got started buying parks back. So I bought my first park in 2012. Um, after I was I was still pulling my all the pieces
0: back together of my life and, Man, and now and where were you though in two thousand and eight? Were you multifamily? Were you single family so still? I-
1: I had a very large portfolio of single-family homes, 122 to be exact, and then I had about uh, just over 500 apartment doors, and then some other miscellaneous uh, commercial real estate buildings. And uh, the single-family is what really—it just—it uh, was just a very inefficient model, and um, th- that's really what 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 got crushed first. We had a lot of cross collateralized uh, loans, local commercial bank debt. Uh, terms that that were coming due at a, at just a very bad time, and uh, in addition to that, down here in Florida, we had a lot of spec boat homes that we had a lot more inventory. We had an inventory um, uh, influx like five years leading up to the to the recession, and so there was a lot of new rooftops that had been built that had never been occupied and that were still being built. And so when all this started going down a lot of those builders started renting those homes out and became our competition. And we lost a lot of vacancy because there was not enough bodies to fill all the units that existed you know, on properties. And so we uh, went into a negative cash flow state. In addition to that, within a period of a year, um, our, our LTV originally across the board and our single family home stuff was like 66%. So we were fairly conservative. We, so we thought, and it, almost that entire portfolio was upside down in value within a year. Um, pretty much you know upside down uh, 90 95% of it was in a year and so it got to the point where we had no equity zero you know negative cash flow making you know payments each month and it just basically imploded and then ultimately a lot of the multifamily stuff we had to fire sale because we you know we had debt coming due as well credit was bad at that point no financing was really available and so we had to basically give a lot of stuff away and uh Went down to essentially zero,
0: <laughs> and is that why you, know, you, you know. moved into mobile home parks? Was that the uh, no, were you?
1: No, not, not necessarily. You know, I I did I reevaluated what I would have done differently. You know, a couple of years um after the crash happened, I kind of looked back and and uh, reevaluated what you know where I should have pivoted my business. You know, what you know what were the really the weak. Uh, links in the chain. And the single family stuff was very weak link in the chain because of the inefficiencies. I owned properties in multiple counties. It was just an ineff- inefficient business model. Um, you know, the amount of effort we I, I put into purchasing 122 single family homes, I could have easily probably had 5,000 apartment units, right? I mean, like, it's just, uh, uh, again, I don't need to speak to the inefficiencies of it. Just, it didn't work well. The debt wasn't the greatest type of debt um, uh, at, at that point. And um And so I knew going back into it, I knew that in order to rebuild, I wanted to do it multifamily. Multifamily just, it was a way for me to scale. It was a way for me to gain efficiencies. And that was the plan. During, you know, kind of my uh, my re-entering into real estate in 2011, I just was trying to talk to everyone I could. You know, the landscape had changed significantly from the crash to 2011. You know, debt was very different. A lot of operators completely went out of business. I mean, the world was a different place, just totally like we're different. about to see probably in the coming yeah. months, right? Different yeah. place. And during my conversations, I was introduced by a good friend of mine to a guy by the name of Randy. Randy happened to be a banker for 30 years. He had recently retired, bought a couple of very large mobile home parks here in Florida. And uh, he said, you should go have lunch with Randy. I know you're not really interested in what he does, but he's a great guy, smart guy, businessman. And um, and he's seen a lot in his time, right? He's been through a few up and downs up and downs in the industry. And I had lunch with Randy. and. And uh, after that two hour lunch, after hearing a lot about his business and mobile home parks and why he had decided to buy those post retirement, and uh, I was intrigued to to say the least. And I basically left that two hour lunch meeting saying, you know what, there's something to this. Uh, And there wasn't a lot of education out there. There wasn't like you couldn't go on Amazon and buy 20 books on the topic. Uh, There weren't many experts in the space whatsoever. It was a very underground industry. And so, but I was like, I'm going to buy one of these things and I'm going to give myself a year. I'm going to learn as much as I can. I'm going to buy a mobile home park. And that's what I did. It took me like 14 months. Uh, 2012, we bought our first park in Atlanta. It was a distressed REO property, uh, very distressed. Probably would never buy that one again. We still own it today. It was a great deal, but it was a major turnaround. Uh, Owned that one still and uh, bought another one about a year after that. And I I bought bought a couple more that following year and um, did that until we essentially either ran out of our own money or ran out of the couple private lenders that I had you know, good maintained relationships with um, to where we wanted to, you know, scale a much larger uh, entity, and that's where Sunrise Capital Investors came in, and that's when we actually started putting out our offerings to accredited investors and uh, those that wanted to get into the space that you know wanted to be in a more passive nature, and so uh, that was about five years ago, and uh, here we are today. That's
0: awesome. No, I, I, you know what? Success stories are awesome, but I love stories of uh, people that hit rock bottom and get back up from it um mainly cuz i feel like that's how i was too so it's and yeah, a lot of it, people it was a rough time it was a it rough, was rough time i'm
1: not gonna say it was easy at all yeah, it took me 3 years to even get my head out of the sand i mean I, i'm not gonna act as though i I, I I pulled my pants back up right away and got back on the horse. That surely as hell didn't happen. And in fact, it was the complete opposite. It was a long drug out process for me, like, you know, getting process servers come to the door once a week or a couple of times a day and, you know, lawsuits and like that stuff didn't go, it didn't go quickly. It just drug on for years and years and years. And, um, and so, I, you know, looking, looking back, I, I don't want to sound insensitive when I say this, uh, you know, regarding the situation we're today, because I sure as heck, don't like the idea that, you know, we're losing people left and right to this virus. I mean, at some point in time, every single one of us, you know, you and I and, and everyone listening is going to have someone that we know, whether it's an immediate family member or a friend of a friend, there's going to be someone that we know that has been impacted and possibly probably loses their life to this, uh, this uh, crazy virus that we have. With that being said, you know, I, you know, there's a side of me that over the last couple of years has been excited to, 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 to see type of a, a reset of some sort in the market, you know, because I just felt felt like things were overinflated. I sure as hell didn't want it to be this, um, but no one, I, I knew that, I felt like it was going to be some type of world event, like, you know, and I can no, never wish like a 9-11 or a terrorist attack or anything of that nature, but I just had a feeling something was going to occur and I didn't, I'm not a mind reader, or, you know, a fortune teller, so I had no idea it was going to be COVID-19 coronavirus, but, um, you know, I think there's gonna be opportunities that come out of this and I wasn't prepared to take advantage of the opportunities uh, uh, that came about in nine, 10, 11, after 2008 crash. Um, And so we are today, you know, and I'm trying to stay, we're trying to look forward. You know, we're dealing with what we have at hand. We got struggles that we're going to be facing here for the coming months. It's inevitable. You know, I don't care how good of a cash position you're in or we're in. It's going to be a tough couple of months as we ride this thing through. However, we're also spending a ton of time, not during downtime, because there's surely no downtime in our business, but we're spending a lot of time proactively looking at the future. You know, like, where do we want to be? Things are going to get back to a new normal. Business will resume, right? Like, it's not going to be halted for, you know, the next couple of years. And so how do we get back on that horse before everyone else does? and actually start chasing opportunities that basically were deals that were maybe on unstable ground to start with deals that, you know, the week, the week fall apart in times like this. And so we want to be the ones that come in and, uh, you know, basically take those opportunities and turning them into something good.
0: I, you know, it's funny hearing you say, I said almost the exact same thing. It was our last podcast. Right? It was like we were like, we need a recession. It's time. I wanted a stock market correction, anything like that. Then this happened, and we're like, no, we did not want this. This is not what we were talking yeah, about, right? This, this is, is the, the wrong, wrong kind. kind. I just wanted equities to go down. Like <laughs> I wanted them to, you know, reverse because I thought they were too high and maybe just a slight slowdown. Um, but this is not, you know, this is obviously totally different. But that's, I, I guess, I heard a quote that. Every market drop is different, but every recovery is the same. And I love that because, you know, we talk about black swans that come into the market, whether it's 2008, COVID-19, a terrorist attack. I mean, if you look at the last recessions, there was nobody, you know, hardly anyone that was like, yeah, I knew that, right? I totally predicted it. It was just out of, and it was very severe. There were things that rattled us to our core, that rocked us and this is in my lifetime that I lived through these, you know, 9-11, 2008, and now COVID-19. And I am beginning to say, you know, this is the norm um, that when you look back pa- back in like more of the 80s and 90s, recessions tended to be more purely economical, like short-term, like interest rate problems, things like that, where this, the last three have been the Great Recession, which was, by a lot of people, a depression. And then you have a terrorist attack, which are horrific, uh, horrific events. And although you don't want to dwell on that, right, although it's – excuse me, ignore that. And although nobody – we sympathize with it, right, and you're scared, everything else like that. We're juggling also opportunity, like you said. And it's like every day you come to to work and it's like, okay, where we stand – What position are we in? Are we laying off employees? How are we doing? And then with the other whatever time you have, it's like, where are the opportunities? Where can we capitalize? Very strange. It's very strange. And preparing for worse times in the next two months and looking at your burn rates, like you mentioned, and also saying, okay, let's look at opportunities now. But that's how you have to do it. And you have to be able to be cautious, but at the same time, proactive in finding opportunities. You have to be looking at burn rates and then be able to flip over immediately, put the optimist hat on. So you, it's your trading hats, right? One, the world's going to end. And how do I look when the world ends? Take that off and say, ah, then we're going to be just fine in three, four months. So I got to find opportunities. Totally strange like, because <laughs> in 2008, it wasn't, it was just world's end hats on. All right. This isn't going anywhere. And, you know, it's gonna, it, it, nobody was like, you know, in 2008, 9, and 10, nobody was looking at opportunities. After 2010, that changed. But there was a three-year period of time because it didn't matter because there was no liquidity in the market. There was no money to have anyways. Deals were just falling. We were defl. Uh, you know, there was deflation. We're, this is not like that. It's very strange.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's uh, you know it it will be interesting to see you know these next couple of months play out and um and what truly shakes out of this I, you know I, I do think that I do think that the the government will ultimately step in and force the lenders at some point they, they're going to have to or else the commercial uh, commercial real estate industry is going to collapse in its entirety uh, they're going to have to step in and uh, force all lenders of all types uh, to off for, forbearance you know, deferments, what have you, uh, especially, you know, speaking to some of those industries that are, have been the greatest impacted, which, you know, lodging, I mean, hotels, uh, you know, medical office buildings, retail is just getting crushed. And, you know, and then you got, it's already happening, you know, a week, a week ago, or maybe it was a week and a half ago, the, um, the CEO of uh, of uh, Cheesecake Factory, which I, I don't have many locations they have, but it's a huge chain, probably thousands of locations across the country. They publicly came out and said they're not paying their rent, they're not paying their landlord rent. And and mattress firm did the same thing. They've got like twenty five hundred locations across the country. They they can't pay their rent, and that's a trickle down effect. That is, um, you know, number of the owners of those buildings. There might be a lot of institutions that own the buildings that they rent in, but there's also other buildings they rent in that are probably owned by just local guys like you and I that don't have the ability we don't have we're not sitting on billions of dollars of cash to support you know 30 or 40 50 percent of our tenants not paying especially not just one month for a couple of months in a row uh and so it's um it's gonna be interesting times, time to say the least and i i think that the government you know they've they've done the best they can you know i hate and this isn't a political conversation what i hate to see is all the negativity um because none of us on this on this you know listening to this or you and i aj I'm not sure you're know, putting that getting put in a position that the, the president and his uh, council are in, you're know, having to make decisions that they've been making. Yeah. They make good decisions, bad decisions, but what is the right decision when things like this are going down? I mean, this is a, um, this is a first time type event like this. And um,
0: no, I just, couldn't agree wrong.
1: more. I think it's, it's just, you know, we all got to kind of work together yeah. like, just like work, your tenants like we got to work together as a country and stop placing blame on each other and saying he should have done this he's a horrible president you know i'm not should have been prepared
0: yeah yeah like this idea that he should have been prepared and i heard a a great great quote said all of our congressmen all of our senators knew all the same things none of them stepped up and said we should be manufacturing masks we should be social this like that just didn't happen we didn't know it and you're right now is a time of cooperation not decisiveness and this isn't an economic loss we're talking about. This is lives. And it's sad to see when you're in this, the mudslinging. Now, I could not I could not agree more. Speaking of the banks, though, tell me about your financing. So tell me about financing on these properties. So when you're looking at a mobile home property, first of all, what do you look for? Like, what are you trying to find in a mobile home? And then talk about the financing, how you structure that all, because that's that's different for me, and I don't know a whole lot yeah. about it.
1: Yeah, as far as what we look for, I mean, you know, there's a certain size that we, that we prefer the bigger, the better, you know, like in our business today, we, we prefer, you know, mobile home parks that are, you know, 80 to hundred units in size or larger. Um, so size is a big factor. Another factor is the market that it's in. Uh, you know, we, we want to, you know, we provide affordable housing. So we want to know whatever market we're buying in that there's a demand for affordable housing. Like we're not going to buy in a market that I'll give you an example, like Flint, Michigan, I think it's probably the lowest price market in the country. You could probably go buy a single family home in Flint, Michigan for like, $12,000. I think the median home price is like 30,000. No affordable housing is needed there. Everything's affordable. And there's, there's actually many other parts of the country that are still like that today that had never fully recovered from the recession, or that had major, they were, they were supportive of like major one, two or three employers, and one of those two employers or two of those three employers Went by the wayside, or you know, took their their processes overseas, and so we want to know if there's a demand for affordable housing. Uh, in addition, to that we want to know that people are actually it's a stable local economy that there's there's people there and people are staying and coming in, not leaving. Right? Again, many parts of the country, you know, using. A statewide example is New York. Uh, New York is uh, it's got people fleeing left and right. California is kind of the same thing. Uh, it, it, we get down to a micro level. There's good markets in both those states, but generally speaking, we're starting to really steer clear. Yeah, we've got stuff in New York. We're actually selling it right now. Um, they're actually great properties, but we're just New York from a political standpoint. Um, it's not very uh, landlord friendly and it's only gotten worse over the last year uh, with statewide rent control, which is, you know, severely affect us. And so, just things of that nature. And then, um, uh, you know, we want to know that uh, that it's got a diverse the uh, di- diverse employment base as well. You know, our, our folks have jobs and we don't want them to be relying on one local manufacturing plan or, you know, one major employer to support that entire town. So we want diversity of employment, just like you probably look for in self-storage space and the apartment space, you know, a lot of the same demographics. Um, and then after after we kind of work out the market stuff, you know, as far as the property itself, uh, you know, we like buying, we're a value add buyer. Um, we like buying things that, uh, are in, you know, good, good locations, good school districts are incredibly important for us. Cause even folks that live in affordable housing want the best for their children for the most part, right? They want their kids to go to good schools, get good educations, what have you. And I know that if I can buy a property that's in a good part of town, that's got a good school district, um, that even if it's a little rough today, I know that I can get the bad elements out and that there's plenty of good people waiting to come in if we fix that place up and, uh, you know, get it back up to snuff. And so we're looking for things that are in strong local economic environments, good location and that we can go in and basically, uh, uh, you know, clean up, improve. And, uh, and, and create a good bit of sweat equity in them. You know, value add to us, what that means is, uh, this is pretty common in the, in the mobile home park space. There's a couple, you know, we like to call it like high hanging fruit, middle hanging fruit, low hanging fruit. So a lot of these mobile home parks are owned by mom and pops. And one of the common things with mom and pops is that they've been very involved in running the business. Like they're there, they're, like, they're the ones that are actually doing the rehabs. They're the ones that are fixing the road, you know, patching roads and they're doing a little bit of everything. However, a lot of times as they get older, they be, they're not all the, to start with, they weren't the best business people. And uh, as they get older, they get tired, they, get so they can't run the park themselves. And so things start falling by the wayside. So we'll go in and we'll fix infrastructure. For example, one of the big common ones is water and sewer. Uh, uh, if it's municipal water and sewer, a lot of times these older mama pops have never charged the residents for it. Over time, the infrastructure gets old. It's got holes in. It's got leaks, and so they're wasting water first off, and also the residents are not paying for it. They're abusing it, and so typically we can go in and very quickly by installing individual meters, we can literally cut water and sewer expenses by fifty percent. In addition to that, we'll just bill back for the individual usage to the residents. So we can we can go into a park that's got a hundred thousand dollar annual water and sewer bill and eliminate ninety five percent of it. Uh, you know been about $40,000 doing it and, and eliminate the, that major hit. And so, run down on cap rate, we can add hundreds of thousands of dollars of value very quickly by doing that. Another big thing in our business is, uh, mom and pops that have not kept their, uh, not just the parks up the snub as far as the condition, but you know, they haven't kept up with market rates, you know, at all. There's been many parks we purchased where they haven't raised rents for 12, 13, 14 years. And so, once we do our improvements, we'll go in and we'll have a, you know, a three to five year plan to get rents up to where they need to be. And again, that's low hanging fruit. That's just a matter of, making the necessary improvements but then in an incremental basis annually you're getting rents up to market over time and uh, adding a significant amount of value that way and then the last one which is like high-hanging fruit for us is a lot of these parks you'll find you know giving the example 100 space park um, you'll go in and you'll find that there's 100 developed spaces but maybe there's only 80 mobile homes in the park and for whatever reason over the years maybe it was full at some point. Sometime over, over time, those 20 lots of people move their trailer, you know, maybe they had to leave for a job transfer, maybe they just sold their home because they're, you know, moving to another part of town and someone else bought that home and moved it out. Either way, those 20 homes have left the park. And that means that revenue left those lots. And a lot of these mom and pops don't have the capital necessary to get homes back in there. Uh, And the business today is very different than what it used to be. If you want to fill those vacant lots, you basically have to institute a either used or new home sales program. And you got to be the one, the owner, you have to be the one to actually put forth the capital, bring homes in, get them set up, and then, you know, put together a, again, a used or new home sales program where you attract people to come into your community. And a lot of these mom and pops, they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars laying around to go buy. know 10 or 20 mobile homes to bring in and so for us that's high hanging fruit because it's very capital intensive but it's also it's a you know huge opportunity we've got a park right now that um that's in north carolina and raleigh durham area it's 130 lots and uh uh, right now it's got 50 50 vacant pads in it that are fully developed all infrastructures there concrete pads there the driveways there and all we got to do there's a huge demand in that market every home we brought in is literally sold within a matter of a couple of days. And so, uh, we can get our money back out of, it. and so we, we're our next three-year plan is to basically bring in 50 homes, which will add about two million dollars of value to that property over the next couple of years. So, uh, just a couple of ways that we, you know, what we look for, and also how we add value to these uh, these mobile home parks.
0: And it, why is financing? Uh, talk about financing. Oh, you asked me about yeah.
1: financing. Yeah, <laughs> and I didn't answer that question. My apologies. No, so it's, you know, it's yeah. and it's changed a lot over the years. When we got into the business back in 2012, number one, financing was. You know, that didn't really exist too much across the board. Uh, uh, but, you know, b- back years ago, a lot of times it was really only local banks or credit unions uh, that would finance mobile home parks, generally speaking, uh, in, in, in very select ones that understood the business model. Most banks n- they just don't understand the business model. or They're scared of it because it's got a negative stigma attached to it. And then, uh, you know, Fannie and Freddie have been involved in the space for many, many years. The restrictions back when we got in the business were, I mean, it they, they, they was very tight. I mean, it was nearly impossible to get a loan through them. And so unless it was a primo five-star, you know, uh, park with all these amenities, swimming pool, clubhouse, what have you, like it wouldn't qualify for the program. They've gotten a lot more lean over time. So Freddie and Fannie are very competitive in our space. Um, there's a number of, well, not today, but, you know, typically there's a number of CMBS lenders that are uh, very active in our space. And now the work has spread a great deal amongst the, the country. To where there's a ton of regional and national banks that have mobile home park programs available. And so it's been a night and day difference from the time we got in till today of what type of available financing there is. And, you know, Fannie and Freddie, uh, you know, agency debt is by far the best. Um, It's non recourse, typically a 30 year amortization, 10 year fixed term, and very low interest rates. Today it's across the board because of uh, uh, what's happening. But uh, before, you know, back in February, you could get. You can get Fannie or Freddie debt on a, on a property at seventy five percent loan to value for you know three and a half percent, possibly even lower than that. CMBS slightly higher rate but similar terms. You know thirty year amortization, ten year fixed, uh, and then you know the local, regional, national bank debt is kind of across the board anywhere from like a twenty uh, year amortization. You know uh, typical commercial loan, twenty year amortization, five year balloon or, or rate reset. Rates are probably going to be about. You know, probably about a, a hundred to two hundred basis points higher than that of a CMBS or a or an agency lender. But uh, anyway, th- there's multiple different financing options, very similar to that of multifamily. Uh, it's it's it, we're we're almost neck to neck as far as what type of options we have to finance as the multifamily players do. So
0: that's interesting. And and it, talk to me about the state. I, and I apologize. I don't want to keep you uh, <laughs> too long. So I know it's no, a, yeah, good. but um. Tell me just real quick before uh, we we end here, tell me about the the market that currently sits, because as I understand, cap rates in your industry are very low in your market. It's that, from at least from what I hear, once again, I, I don't know, but I hear that if you're going out looking to buy a mobile home park, that you should expect to have very low cap rates.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's as with anything. I mean, even what you saw in self storage that's happened over these last couple of years. A uh, it, it, the, the couple of big uh, reasons behind it, at least in our niche. Number one, you know, up until three years ago, there were a few, you know, larger players in the space, but most of it was still guys of our size or mom and pops, right? There wasn't a lot of private equity, not a lot of institutional firms. Last three years, that's been a 180 shift. Now there's a ton of, you know, uh, 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 large PE firms chasing uh, these deals, their cost of capital is much less than ours. I mean, they they might be getting, depending on where their source of capital is coming from, they might be getting money at, you know, one or 2%. And so they can buy a five cap deal and have a three, you know, 300 basis point spread, which that works, right. And so we've got that type of competition coming in. The other thing that has really created a cap rate compression in our industry is the lack of new supply. I mean, there's a supply demand factor, we got a in uh, an ordered amount of, of of demand, growing amount of demand on a regular basis, but there's no new supply. In fact, we're the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. Exactly, so, I was
0: about to say that is yeah. one of the coolest statistics I've ever heard. <laughs> that your supply yeah, yeah. is actually being reduced, it's isn't it? Only like more 3% people a year? yeah. Fighting, you know,
1: fighting for the same deals, and those deals are they're going away. Yeah, right? <laughs> but know? makes the great- reason why they're going away is. Either they're getting redeveloped because they were built 50 years ago out in the outskirts of town. And now the outskirts of town is the center of town and there's a higher embedded property. Um, new ones aren't being built for a couple of different reasons. You know, number one, the negative stigma. You know, it's a, the not my backyard syndrome. You know, you try to, you try to get approval to build one you're going to have a riot probably down at the local uh, uh, municipality. You know, people saying, we don't want that park here. In addition to that, it doesn't really make sense from a tax basis for a municipality. There's much much better things they could do with that 10 acres of land if it's in a primo location than to build a mobile home park, shopping center, multifamily property. You know, I mean... Tax basis would be much higher and it would also attract a much, you know, perceived to be higher end demographic that would spend money in their town and bring money to the town versus an affordable housing. It's, it's the same argument with any affordable housing. That's why it's not really getting built too much in this country because there's no incentives for us to do so. You know, number one, municipality they say they want it, but then they're not allowing it and they don't offer any incentives to actually get the damn thing done. So it's a weird dichotomy we find ourselves in. It is.
0: No, yeah, um, yeah. Once again, man, I I really appreciate you coming on. This this is, you know, I I look at particularly in this space, you know, I look at you know you as being kind of the expert. You're very well known in the space. Um, your podcast is awesome. Um, and should anybody anybody who's looking to get a hold of you wants to know about more about Sunrise, what you do, uh, l- where should they go? I'll put this all in the show notes. But tell people how they get in contact with you, how they can learn more from you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My website, kevinbup.com. That's probably like the best central location. Uh, You can listen to my podcast there. You can get links to the two different shows I do. Uh, You can get links to our company website, which is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. But kevinbup.com, you you can use that as your home base and you can reach out to me through there as well, the contact us page. And uh, I'm not too hard to track down.
0: (laughs) No, no, you're not. That's why I I assume a lot of people that are listening to this have already heard from you. So, um, but that's Exactly uh that's awesome. They want to hear they hear more. It's so interesting. You're so insightful and the value that you provided was awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate that you being so open and and telling us uh you know what you're doing. That's you know it's it's in it's enlightening into a space that I feel like a lot of people don't have a window to see into. So, thank you.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that, AJ, and thanks for having me on, and thanks for all you do, you know, putting the show together and um, and how much work it takes, obviously. So yeah. it's uh, I pr- appreciate you putting
0: out all this information to the folks and helping everyone. Absolutely, and we'll have you back again. So talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at cashflow with the number or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.